Thank you, Tracy. Well, good morning. My name's Tony Anderson. If I haven't had the privilege of meeting you, I serve here as the executive pastor and the pastor of counseling. And we are in a, this is going to be the second part of a two-part series from the book of Daniel. If you go ahead and open your Bibles to the book of Daniel, we're going to be in chapter three. Last week, Ryan Toller did part one, and he was going to do part two, but we got word this week he was fired. Something about a video. I'm not so... Um, now, I, bet, I better explain that if you didn't make it last week. No, there was a video of, he showed of our pastor uh, dressed in a baby costume. And so, no, really, Ryan and I had had this plan. And actually, last week, uh, as we're in the book of Daniel, we call this true to God under pressure. We don't want you to separate this from the Nehemiah series we're in. You know, Nehemiah, he had a heart for the broken and the burned. He was, he was heartbroken because the walls of Jerusalem were broken, the gates were burned down. And so we've been studying Nehemiah to try to learn what do we have to know and learn from the scriptures if we're going to have a heart for the broken and burned. But there is a reality. If we're going to engage in a culture that resulted in the broken and burned, we are going to expect, we should expect pressure from that same culture. If we're trying to fix what our culture is broken, there are people in our society that will not like it. So how do we stand firm, true to God, under pressure? And in chapter one last week, uh, Ryan uh, taught us about how Nebuchadnezzar had a plan to take some of the brightest of the uh, Jewish captives and what he was going to do, he was going to isolate them, he was going to indoctrinate them, and he was going to entice them with what was attractive from their culture. And Ryan showed us that a way to stay true to God under pressure is to gather together to avoid isolation. Many times when things are hard, we want to just sort of retreat to our own our homes, our rooms, and we don't want to gather with other believers where strength can be found. He also showed us that we need to remember the word. What has God said he would do? What has God promised? What has the scripture said, revealed to us that he has already done? And then when we are enticed to use what we have remembered to reject the enticement. In chapter one, it was food sacrificed to idols. But to remember, God has promised blessing when there's obedience. But he's also warned us of uh, consequences when we disobey him. And so now we're in chapter three. Go ahead and open to chapter three, but let me uh, give you a little bit from chapter two that's going to be important for our story. In chapter two, um, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream and he wants his wise men to interpret it. But he does more than say, I want you to interpret it. I want you to tell me what the dream was and then interpret it. And of course, all the wise men say, how can we, you got to tell us first. And he says, no, if you're really all that wise, you can tell me what the dream is. Well, they couldn't, but the Lord allowed Daniel to not only know the dream, but interpret the dream. And in the dream, uh, Nebuchadnezzar had seen this tall statue, and it was made out of different um, metals, gold and silver, bronze and clay. And Daniel had been able to interpret it, that it, re it represented uh, the kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonians at the top, and then successive kingdoms made of lesser metals that would ultimately all be destroyed with the coming kingdom of Christ. Well, because he was able to interpret it, Daniel is promoted to the king's personal service. And at Daniel's request, his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are appointed administrators of the province of Babylon. And so that's where our story picks up in chapter 3. So probably because of the dream, Nebuchadnezzar has this idea that he builds a tall statue, 90 feet tall by 9 feet wide. 
and he calls all the government leaders from all over Babylon to come to the, probably the dedication of the statue, and then he issues a law, a decree, and he has sort of the town crier, the herald, announce the law. And that, uh, true to God, under pressure, by the way, is our topic today. Prepare for the question, and we'll find out what that question is in a minute. But then, in chapter uh, 3, verse 5, that at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, the trigon, the psaltery, the bagpipe, and all kinds of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king has set up. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the midst of furnace of blazing fire. And so this is the new law. The, the uh, music plays, and it says in verse 7 that people, nations, and men from all across Babylon bow down and worship the idol. Well, then in uh, verse 8, accusations are made. Certain Chaldeans, who were basically government leaders, many believed to be astrologers, wise men, come to the king, sort of butter him up and say, O king, live forever. And by the way, remember that law you made? He says, of course I remember the law. He made it. He says, well, that law you made that when the music plays, everyone's going to bow down? Yes. Well, they say certain Jews whom you have appointed over the administration of the province of Babylon, namely Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these men, O king, have disregarded you. Other translations says they didn't listen to you. They do not, uh, they disregard you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image which you have set up. Well, you can imagine what Nebuchadnezzar would think at this point when they're basically saying, hey, these people, they have no regard for you. So Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and anger, this isn't something where he's just trying to administer a law. He is legitimately angry. In rage and anger, gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then these men were brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said to them, is it true? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up. Now, if you are ready, at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, the trigon, the psaltery, and the bagpipe, and all kinds of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made you very well. But if you do not worship, you will immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. And what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? Interesting question. What God is there who is able? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to give you an answer concerning this. So when you read this, I want you to think, if you, the original language, it's more like we don't have to be careful. We don't have to think hard about this. In other words, this is an easy one for us. If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So you can imagine the setting. The king has issued this law. He's heard that they have not bowed down. He's angry. He brings them in. There's other people watching, and I think because he had had some, he had been their benefactor a little bit, had get promoted them. He says, I'm going to give you another chance. But then in front of his other leaders, he says, we're not going to do it. And in verse, uh, uh, the next verse, it says, he became enraged and his facial expression changed. And man, I think he's frothing at the mouth. His eyes are popping out. He is so angry. He says, he says, superheat the furnace. 
He gets valiant warriors to come, tie them up, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fully bound. And evidently, the way these furnaces work, you have to sort of take them up a ramp and then dump them in the top. Well, the heat was so hot that these valiant warriors, when they got to the top, were consumed by the heat. They died just getting at the to the top of the furnace. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are thrown into the furnace still fully bound. And it says in verse 24, though, after they were thrown in, the Nebuchadnezzar was astounded and stood up in haste. He said to his high officials, was it not three men we cast bound in the midst of the fire? They replied to the king, certainly, O king. He said, look, I see four men loosed and walking about in the midst of the fire without harm. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Now, most theologians would say that that was the pre-incarnate Christ who was with them. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near the door of the furnace of blazing fire. He responded and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come out, you servants of the most high God, and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the midst of the fire. The satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's high officials gathered around and saw in regard to these men that the fire had no effect on the bodies of these men, nor was the hair of their head singed, nor were their trousers damaged, nor had the smell of fire even come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who put their trust in him, violating the king's command, and yielded up their bodies so, so as not to serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree that any people, nation, or tongue that speaks anything offensive against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses reduced to a rubbish heap inasmuch as there is no other God who is able to deliver in this way. Then the king caused Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to prosper in the province of Babylon. That is an incredible historical event that truly happened. So the question is, we see this great testimony of faithfulness from these three young men, but is there anything we can learn from this today? What can we learn from this historical event? And as I study this, I think if we're gonna engage in restoring the broken and burned, what we have to do is we have to expect the question, is it true? We have to expect the question that someone will come to us and say, is it true you will not worship the idols of this society? You will not bow down to idols. If we're doing the work of the Lord, we will not be able to do it unnoticed. This is not going to be a situation where we're going to try to do spiritual warfare on the down low. Someone once said, you can't take the back roads to heaven. And Charles Spurgeon said, we will not be able to sneak into glory in disguise we're going to be noticed. And we should expect the question, is it true? There will be someone, maybe a boss, maybe a friend, someone who has influence in your life who will angrily look at you and go, is it true you will not bow down to the gods of the world and worship the idols? We have to expect the question. We have to expect the question. So what, what I was, the staff and I sort of got together and says, where or in what context might this question be presented to you today where it says, is it true you do not? Is it true you do not? Is it true you do not bow to the LGBTQ agenda? And many will be angrily in your face. If you don't bow down, you're a hater, you're bigoted. 
but we could expect that question. Is it true you will not bow to the abortion movement? Is it true you're not for women's health? Is it true when you choose to stand for the rights of the unborn? Is it true you won't curse and use coarse language? It's what we do in, on our athletic teams. That's, the, that's just the way we talk in the operating rooms or in the workplace. And you won't do that? Is it true you won't cheat and lie? Cut corners because of your God? Is it true you won't view and celebrate pornography? I mean, come on, everyone does this. And you're gonna take a stand? Are you, are you better than us? Is it true you won't watch TV, movie, TV or movies or listen to music that displeases God? You'll be with friend groups or whatever who wanna watch certain things, listen to certain things, and you take a stand, and then they tell others, and so the pressure's there. Is it true you won't do that? Is it true you won't have sex outside of marriage? I mean, how do you know if you're compatible, right? I mean, you know, when we watch TVs now, the big commitment is what? Let's move in together. Is it true? If you think about it, one of the things where the church stands against culture and society today is the whole area of, of sex. Culture doesn't, they don't mind us feeding the poor or helping with the homeless, but when we take a stand for sexuality and marriage the way God intended, we can expect opposition. There's more. Is it true that you don't get drunk at a, come on, it's a bachelor party. That's what we do. Is it true? It's, it's a wedding. You're not driving and calling Uber. Is it true? Is it true you won't bow to video games? In the Hope Center, one of the growing number of addictions we see is video games, gamers. I mean, their life is consumed by it to the detriment of relationships, to the detriment of work, education. Is it true you won't like or post on social media content that's displeasing to God? I mean, come on, how can you be popular if you don't have a certain number of likes or you don't post things that show that you're culturally relevant? Is it true you won't bow in silence as Christianity is bashed? Hey, we're gonna be in a group. We're gonna peer group, maybe family reunions, and there's gonna be people bashing Christianity. Just, just stay quiet, let it run off your back. Let's bow to that. Don't speak up. Or is it true, remain, um, you don't remain silent at work or in the neighborhood and just act like Jesus? Come on, why, why, why aggravate people? Just act like Jesus and surely that'll be influential enough. So these are all, to help you think through this, these are times when the cultural gods, you'll be asked to bow to them, but our idols may tempt us to actually bow to them. What type of idols am I talking about? Praise of man. If praise of man is important to me and I think I will lose it, I might bow. Or if I think I have to have financial security and this will hinder my advancement, I might not speak. So we have to prepare, expect the question, is it true? And as I studied this, you know, I thought about the fact that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had so many excuses that would have seemed reasonable, but they put off those excuses. And that's what we need to be prepared to do. If I'm gonna have the question, prepare now to put off the excuses. So what excuses were available to them 
that may have seemed reasonable, but they didn't take advantage of. And see if these would be relevant to you. I'm obligated after what he has done for me. Think about this. Nebuchadnezzar had taken these captives. Chapter one, he'd brought them into his service. Chapter two, he had made them leaders in government. He had given them second chances. Can't you see? Look, after all this man's done for us, he's been our champion, our benefactor. Can't, shouldn't we do this one thing for him? But they didn't take that. Maybe you had someone who has promoted your career or a coach who has really uh, helped you go, but, and they say, it, just for all they've done, shouldn't we do this? Or it's useless to resist. It seemed like everyone was doing it. We are just three guys. What's resistance going to get us? Nothing but being thrown into the fire. Or I'm out of town. Remember, these guys weren't in their hometown. They had been taken captive. And it's like, well, this is what they do in this culture. Maybe when you travel, you fall into that. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. So he's like, hey, we're out of town. It's okay. Or I'm an officer or it's my job. Remember, this was a law. They were in a government and their job was to administer the law. And so maybe sometimes you're at work and you go, well, it's my job. And so we try to do this division between the sacred and the secular as if, well, in my home or at church, this is what I believe, this is what I practice, but in this case, it's my job to do this. I can do more alive than dead. Well, it sounds right, you know, or I can do more in this job than if I lose this job. That implies, though, that we somehow are sovereign over where God wants to use us. If God has put us in a place where taking a stand for him is being fruitful, that's where he wants us to take a stand. But we'll say, well, you know, if I get consumed in the furnace, we're not, we're not going to be any good to the rest of the captives here. I'm not actually required to deny my God. This is when we have to be careful. They could have said, you know what, we're... This is just almost like a ceremony. We're going to bow down. We're not asking, really being asked to deny our God, the creator God. So I can go along with this because I'm really not being asked to deny my own God. Or everyone else is doing it. We're really not going to cause anybody else to stumble, right? Because they're already doing it. So what does it hurt if we do it? How about this? It's only once and not for long. Oh, we were taken by surprise here. We're going to die if we don't. We'll do it this one time, and then we'll think through and have a better response the next time it comes up. How about this? Really, this is more than can be expected of me. I think we all have to answer that question sometimes. God, obedient, what you're asking me to do is just more than you can expect of me. But then we remember everything we sang about, about the cross, what he's done for us, and that the gospel is not only saving us from our sins, but then the gospel is progressive sanctification, conforming us to the image of Christ. Christ did die for the praise of his father and for the love of others. So we have to think through that. And we're all, I'm tempted to say, this is really more than can be expected of me. No, no, it's not. So expect the question, put off those excuses, 
but then we have to have an answer ready. Have an answer ready. When they say, is it true you will not worship the gods of this culture and you won't bow down to idols? Put off the excuses and prepare for an answer. And don't minimize the benefit of peacetime preparations for war, right? Today, maybe think through, you know what? I can see this question coming. How would I respond to that if asked? And I think you can think through, I wanna make this a redemptive answer. And you think through, you know what? Because of what Jesus has done for me, that's not something I can do. I wanna be the best employee possible, but, and then share because of what Christ has done or on your campuses or whatever. Now, I agree there's sometimes when they may be angrily in your face and they're not interested in hearing a response, but if they are, say, hey, I'd love to tell you why I can't. And you know what? We don't even have to agree. We can still be friends, but I still want, I want to, I can give you an answer of why I cannot bow down. But I think if we prepare in advance, prepare what that answer will be, then we will be better off than if we just spend our whole life saying, I hope I don't get the question. I hope I don't get the question. I hope I don't get the question. Have an answer ready. And then, just like our three young men did, I know the question's coming. I'm going to put off those excuses. I'm going to have my answer. And then I can proceed with confidence in God. Proceed with confidence in God. These young men knew who God is. We can know who he was. That We can know who God is and what he has promised. Did you notice when they, they asked the question and they, they didn't hesitate with the answer? They did not hesitate with the answer. They didn't try to negotiate. They didn't try to buy time. They didn't say, oh, King, can we confer? Can we confer? We want to make sure. Let's try to get our thoughts. They knew who God was. In fact, it's interesting. At the, the last thing the King said is, what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? I think these three young men realized, you know what? He just brought someone else into this discussion. He's just challenged the creator God says, I'm going to do this. And who, what God can possibly save them? I sort of see that. Have you ever been talking to someone and they've said someone said something almost blasphemous to God and he sort of wanted to sort of slide over before the lightning strikes? I sort of think that's what these three young men did. They go, what God is it that can save you? And they go, well... And then they said, our God is able to deliver us from the fire and he will deliver us from you. I think there's actually two different things there. He's able, meaning he has the ability to deliver us from the fire. He may or may not, but he will deliver us from you. Whether he takes us home to glory today or delivers us from the fire, he will deliver us from you. They were confident of that. And I also think if you notice how they addressed Nebuchadnezzar, they said, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer. If you look through all of chapter, the rest of chapter three, every time Nebuchadnezzar was addressed, it all started with, oh, king, even, even the three young men in other verses. But right after he says that, what God is there is sort of like, I think because of the familiarity they had, they did have a relationship. It was almost like, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, you don't know the God. We're, we're communicating with you almost more on a personal basis. We know a God who can. 
the only time in chapter three where they didn't address him with, O king first, O Nebuchadnezzar, we know a God. So what, can, what do we know about our God today that can help us? 1 Corinthians 10, 13, one of my favorite verses. Paul tells us, no temptation has overtaken you, but such is common to man. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. So maybe as we went through those possible scenarios, you've been in one or you can foresee one coming. What this verse tells us is that temptation to bow is common. You're not alone. Other people have been through that similar situation and walked in obedience. So your temptation is common. Doesn't mean it's universal. I think some people look at an individual and go, well, you don't know what it's like, you've never been. It doesn't say it's universal, it says it's common, meaning it's not uncommon. So your temptation is not uncommon. And this, what do we know about God? He is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able so that when you are tempted, he will provide a way so you can endure it. He doesn't say he'll take the consequences away, but what this verse says is there'll never be a situation where sin is your only option. There will be a righteous way to proceed whatever that temptation is. And it is a personal promise in the temptation. I don't know about you, but I've, I've witnessed people who've endured such hard things to the glory of God. And it's like, I don't know how they were able to preserve their testimony in that. I don't think I could have done that. Well, the reason is it wasn't my temptation. Had it been, God would have been faithful. Charles Spurgeon tells the story of one of the early martyrs who was set to be burned alive the next day. And he was so afraid that he would deny God to save his life. He would, that, and discredit his testimony that the night before in his cell, there was a fire and he stuck his foot in the fire just to see if he would be able to endure it. And he pulled his foot back quickly in pain and was fearful that he wasn't going to be able to endure it. Yet the next day, they say that when he was burned, he had a look of peace on his face and he never denied God. The point is God did not require, obedience did not require him to stick his foot in the fire. That wasn't the temptation. That wasn't what obedience was required of him. But the next day, when it was needed, God was sufficient and provided what he needed. So that God has promised us in the temptation to provide us a way of escape. But you notice there's no command in this verse. There's a statement about our temptation and statements about God's character and provision, but there's no command that we have to do. That comes in verse 14. Because of all this, we get the therefore. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Think about our three young men today. They were getting ready to be thrown into the furnace. There was a promise that God would provide what they needed so that they could be obedient, even to the point of death. But they had to recognize, don't run to the idol. We could say, look, oh, if I run to the idol, this goes away. But our, what God tells us is, I'll provide for you. You're gonna be tempted to wanna run to your idol of comfort, of ease, of praise of man, of security, of, of control, or believing you have control. Don't run to your idol. Trust him to provide what you need. 
and then be willing to endure the consequences. Whatever the consequences are, God, I trust you. That's what, that's what our three young men said today, right? We're not going to bow down. He's able, he will, but even if he doesn't, we will not bow to idols. And Nebuchadnezzar recognized it after they came out in verse 28, he said, they yielded up their bodies so as not to serve or worship any God except their own God. He recognized in advance they were willing to sacrifice their bodies. And that's what Romans 12, 1 tells us. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to, pre- to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. We, are, we need to be willing to say, walk in common. God will provide I will walk through the consequences that may come because he is worthy of worship. Worthy of worship. I was just so struck by that as we took the Lord's Supper today. He is worthy of our worship. The other thing I think these young men were aware of is they were, had a clear sense of God's presence, which was manifested in the fourth individual in the flame. Jesus tells us in Matthew 28, 20, when he sends us out in the great commandment to make disciples, he says, I am with you always. Always. He is never alone. And as Christ followers, he lives in us. So he's always with us and in us. He never leaves us. He never forsakes us. I think sometimes we feel isolated. We're lonely. He's never, he's never, uh, he will always be with us. And... He sees us. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, watching the evil and the good. So when you're in these temptations, you ever think, Lord, do you see what's happening right now? Are you, are you, do you see this? Uh, you know, this is hard. I'm not sure you're, you're seeing what's going on. He sees it. He's aware of when evil is confronting us, when we are being challenged by our faith. He sees it. But you know what? It also means he sees us. What do I mean by that? He sees the temptation. He also sees our response. I think of Jesus, I mean, of Peter, the night of the arrest, when he denied Jesus three times and he made eye contact with Jesus on the third time. Now, I don't know about you, but I get the sense that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would not have denied Jesus in that courtyard if confronted by a servant girl. They knew, they were confident. And so I have to think through, how would I respond? He will see my response. I can never respond in secrecy. There may not be any other humans around, but he will see my response. If I am always aware that he is present to see the good and the evil, that will encourage me to stand up to the question of, is it true you will not bow? In the power of God, I will not. Then we see, finally, that they, have a deep, they had a deep understanding and commitment to God's law. A deep commitment, a deep understanding and commitment to God's law. They knew, Ten Commandments, you shall have no other gods before me, and you shall not worship any graven images. They knew that. And so for us, this ties right back to what Ryan taught last week. If we're going to stay true to God under pressure as we seek to restore the broken and the burned, we have to know this and understand it. I think a lot of times we may know what the scriptures say, but it's like, what does the practical look like? How would I apply this? And so 
you think about the whole issue of idolatry. I think most of you would say, I don't worship golden calves. I don't worship figurines. But maybe you never thought of the fact that anything that I would sin to get, sin if I don't get, don't think I can be happy without, is an idol. And God calls our idolatry adultery. Some of you may have actually had a spouse commit adultery and know how painful that is. When we commit idolatry, it is spiritual adultery. It's not an analogy like, oh, it's sort of like it. No, God says you have the same heart as an adulterer. And so we have to have an understanding and a commitment to stay true to God's word. And the great thing is when we do, when we stay true, we can expect good results. We can expect good results. Let's look at our story today. As we, as you think about this, their bonds were off. They were thrown in fully tied up, stayed true to God in their, 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 their bounds, weird way, but that, that's correct, were off. You think about this. If I am true to God, I recognize he is my sufficiency, then I'm no longer enslaved to the opinions of others. I'm no longer enslaved that I have to have more money. I can be a generous giver and not fear that I won't have enough because God will be sufficient. I'm free of anything that enslaves me from loving and keeps me from loving God and loving others. Their garments were preserved. I don't know about you, but we, our family group camps out a lot. We sit by the fire. You just sit close to the fire. Those clothes stink forever. I mean, you have to wash them a couple of times. Their garments weren't even burned or singed. What's the significance? What do we get when we place faith in Christ? We get robes of righteousness. And no matter what consequences we face here, those will not be burned. Those will not be singed. We will continue to have those robes of righteousness. They had peace in the fire in the storm, like we just sang. How do, I know, how do we know that? It said they were walking around in there. I mean, they were still alive, but they weren't saying, how do we get out? They weren't hot-footing around the coals. They were walking, which is a, the Bible says is an indicator of peace. They were experiencing peace in the fire or in the storm. They had a testimony of encouragement to others. I mean, remember, government leaders were there. They had seen how they stood firm. They saw an angry Nebuchadnezzar throw them in, and they saw them come out without any harm at all. What a testimony of their faithfulness and a greater testimony of God's faithfulness. And they had, I'm sure they were testimonies to the other Jews in captivity, and they're a testimony to us today because God had it recorded in Scripture. And God is glorified. Think about what did Nebuchadnezzar do after this? He said, because of this, you know, I just said what God is able, their God is able. And therefore, I issue a new law. No one can speak poorly about the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And if you do, you'll be dismembered and your house will be burned down. So I don't know how, a little bit coercive maybe, but still they recognize which God was able. I'm going to ask the band to come up now. On Thursday night, I gave him like five seconds. <laughs> so I'm giving him a little more time today. But if you would, stick with me here. I think sometimes when we are tempted to bow down, we do fall into that trap of, I, I really don't see how anything beneficial can come from this. I want you to think of the, a New Testament example from the Apostle Paul. Paul is one of the greatest missionaries we've ever known. 
He was saved radically on the road to Damascus where he went from Saul to Paul when God saved him. And then he went about preaching the gospel to unreached areas. And in the process, he was shipwrecked, he was beaten, he was naked, he was poor. He endured it all. And toward the end of his life, he wanted to go preach the gospel in Rome, except when he got there, he was imprisoned in Rome. Now, he could have said, Lord, after all I've done for you, after all I've endured, couldn't you have given me this one thing to preach the gospel in Rome and been discouraged? But we see in Philippians chapter one, when he writes to the church in Philippi, he's, who knew about his condition, he says, I don't want you to be discouraged. He says, you know what? Because I'm in prison, more people have had to step up to preach the gospel. Now, some of them are doing it for greed, but the end result is people are hearing the gospel. Second, I'm in, I, every, the whole Praetorian Guard has heard the gospel because every day they're chained to me and I share the gospel. Now, historians will tell you that when Rome conquered Europe and moved west and took Christianity with them, most likely many of those Praetorian Guards were the ones who took the gospel. So Paul's imprisonment was used for that. And the one thing that strikes me is he wrote the book of Philippians, which is now canonized. And for many of us is one of the most encouraging books in the New Testament. All of that because he was willing not to bow and to serve the Lord, great things were accomplished. And when he became aware of it, may have been when he was in glory himself. So don't forget, God will use everything for his good purposes. So what I'd like you to do now is we're gonna close with the, the band's gonna lead us. And as you sing the words of this song, be encouraged that we can face any obstacle when we are committed not to bow down. Let's stand together, friends. Let us run to the one who holds our souls. Let us hold to the one who won't let go. Let us go with his chains undone. Let us run to the one who stoked the fire inside our hearts.
pray for you in any way. That's our joy and our privilege. We believe in the power of prayer here that we, we say there's nothing impossible for God. So if there's something in your life that feels impossible, could we pray for you? There are men and women available between the auditoriums that are there every Sunday after each hour to pray with you. And I'd actually like to start our service, um, end our service the way we started it. And maybe we would read this scripture out loud together. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. And we said, amen. Have a great weekend. See you next time.